All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us a day to worship you through the study of your word. And thank you for making this a wonderful day to fellowship with other like-minded believers. Father, our hearts go out fervently to those still struggling in this world, to those still deceived especially, and also for those still unable to make it here this morning due to some illness. We pray, Father, for our own diligence that we remain unbroken in our overwhelming desire to be pleasing to you. We pray also, Father, that this message find its way to a lost and dying world that needs this truth more than ever. So we do ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, a continuation this morning. The message title is the difficult passages, Grace and Works, Part 2. I'd like to begin with a quote from J. Gresham Machen, and it has everything to do with the nature of our lessons as of late, specifically to do with faith, grace, works. Faith is the acceptance of a gift at the hands of Christ. It is a very wonderful thing. It involves a change of the whole nature of man. It involves a new hatred of sin and a new hunger and thirst after righteousness. Such a wonderful change is not the work of man. Faith itself is given us by the Spirit of God. Christians never make themselves Christians. They are made Christians by God. And he continues this way, It is quite inconceivable that a man should be given this faith in Christ, that he should accept this gift which Christ offers and still go on contentedly in sin. For the very thing which Christ offers us is salvation from sin. Remember, that's been our emphasis this past week. Understand salvation, theologically, you know, soteriology proper. Understand what you're being saved from. So he says, for the very thing which Christ offers us is salvation from sin. Not only salvation from the guilt of sin, but also salvation from the power of sin. And when we talk about the power of sin That's when the idea of the dominion or the sovereignty of sin, which we're all born in as human beings, comes into play. And you have to understand by grace that God's plan for salvation is deliverance from all of that. Not one part of it. Not just what we like to think God's grace does at salvation. He continues, the very thing that the Christian does, therefore, is to keep the law of God He keeps it no longer as a way of earning his salvation, for salvation has been given him freely by God. But he keeps it joyously as a central part of salvation itself. And then he finishes this way. The faith of which Paul speaks is, as Paul himself says, a faith that works through love. 
a faith that works through love, and love is the fulfilling of the whole law. The faith that Paul means when he speaks of justification by faith alone is a faith that works, that produces good fruit. It's undeniable. These are the things that the Spirit's been teaching us as a congregation. The faith that Paul means when he speaks of justification by faith alone is a faith that works. Otherwise, it's an abomination of grace. Otherwise, God is, God's grace is what? Then insufficient, which is also contrary to Paul who said His grace is sufficient. You either believe that grace is sufficient or you don't. We're going to begin this morning by pulling together several passages that we visited individually over the course of the past couple of weeks now. And based on all that the Spirit's been sort of kneading into our souls, I'm praying that you all see the light for what it is. Simple, basic truth that is designed to make you free. Go to John 8.19. John 8.19 This is what the Spirit's teaching us. He doesn't want us confused at all about the Gospel, but that is, frankly, an impossibility if you're confused about God's grace. You will be confused about the Gospel if you're confused about His grace. John 8, 19, So they were saying to Him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews, look at the audience, remember the context of Jesus' own life even, so the Jews were saying, surely we will not kill him. he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, the issue then with salvation is being saved, as Mackin said, from sin. Not from hell, not from some other thing. From sin itself, including its dominion. And when, by the way, when he said, unless you believe that I am he, up here on the board, he is actually not part of the original language in John 8, 24. The original Uh, language translates plainly, I am, which if you know anything about the Old Testament has great Hebrew theological significance. To say I am, it means Jesus is saying, I'm God. If this is true, the Jews were in a quandary, for they thought Jesus a liar, but yet God cannot lie. So he says again, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I am. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. You see, just like today even, the issue wasn't about facts about a person. 
It was about a person. It wasn't about facts about Jesus. It was about Jesus. The Messiah is not a collection of offices or even activities done by Jesus Christ. The Messiah is a person. And it's unto Him that we believe. We accept Him. And He just happens to be King of kings, Lord of lords, and Savior. But there's no separation, as I've taught you this past week. If He saves you, then He has to be your Lord because He delivers you from the sovereignty of sin to the sovereignty of righteousness, where He is Lord. So there's no saving without that activity going right hand in hand with it. But yet, perversions on grace try to separate these things out and give man the power to decide on God's grace. That's not how it works, my friends. That's a perversion. Again, verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in uh, him, If you continue in my word, there's that disclaimer, great. You say you believe, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So there's a qualifying statement there from Jesus Christ, if you continue in my word. In other words, if you persevere. Why? Because we know that anyone that's truly saved, truly perseveres. Unless God's a liar, unless Scripture was inspired unholy. These last three verses were the subject of our messages on believing, and that not all believing results in saving faith. There have been a lot of people over the years, even in context here, that believe certain aspects about Jesus Christ. They even believe that He was from God. As we learned, even the demons believed and shuddered. So we know not just knowing Jesus was Jesus, we have to believe, we have to trust, we have to accept Him as Lord and Savior. That's a different proposition than just believe these facts. So we did spend some time on the topic of believing in this series, the difficult passages, that not all believing results in saving faith, for it can be in simple facts or even miracles, as we saw through Scripture. There are lots of people that believe that the miracles were real. Think about even the Pharisees. He's doing all these miracles. What are we going to do with this guy? He's, a, he's ruining our business. He's bad for business. As we dig our heels in this morning, and as I alluded to on Thursday, I will not be contending with Satan on his terms. I believe that this area, this idea of grace, being perverted is one of the linchpins to Satan's strategy 
for deceiving people, for leading people astray. Why? Because fundamentally it produces, it manifests in a false gospel. If you can pervert the grace of God, then the gospel's wide open. Because now you don't understand what the good news actually is. Now you don't actually understand what salvation truly is. You think it's salvation from hell. Well, who wants to go to hell? Believe this little thing, mental ascent, you get to go to heaven. Good, okay, I'm going back to the, the, you know, the pigsty over here. I will not be contending with Satan on his terms. Remember, any good defense attorney is going to seek to get their opponents trapped in false presuppositions. I've taught you this many times now. Asking wrong questions, accepting wrong questions, and then letting, letting, sort of letting the line out in fishing terms and, and being stuck and confused by the end of it all because you didn't stop and say, wait a minute, sir or ma'am or whoever, did you just suppose that this is true and you're asking me a question that I have to presume this is true before I can answer this thing? but you prefer I not actually ask the presupposition or question the presupposition so that I go down this horrible road with you and become confused myself? Is this what we're up to? Oh, Satan? That's exactly what Satan did in the garden. It's not a novel concept. He still does it now. He gets people asking all the wrong questions. Do you want to go to hell? Do you want to burn? Well, then believe this coin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in these things about him. Or do you actually understand how depraved you are? Do you understand why Jesus Christ, the first thing out of his mouth in his public ministry was repent? Do you understand that? Because if you don't, you don't understand the sin problem yet, which means it's impossible for you to understand the salvation solution, which means you don't understand the gospel yet. You believe some little G gospel from another spirit that has a different Jesus So don't fall prey to false presuppositions because if they, can, if they can't do this even, if they can't get you to fall for their false presuppositions, if they can't do that, they will muddy the waters with so much extraneous, you know, like not so simple data that a person will walk away confused. And confusion inevitably leads to what? Doubt. Go to 1 Corinthians 14.33. 1433. So I don't want to take you down that road. The Spirit's just giving you enough to say, okay, okay, here's the scripture. Here's what I thought was true, or this is what I've heard to be true, and something's not, something's not adding up. But if you're confused, do not blame me. Do not blame this pulpit. Go to scripture. Let scripture iron it out in your souls. But if you're confused, what does Scripture say? First off, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God's not a God of confusion, so that means that if there's been confusion sown in your life, somewhere along the line, something got perverted from the pure truth about Jesus Christ even. And as we're focusing on this week uh, on grace itself, up here on the board, to drive that home, confusion regarding salvation, Satan, the great attorney, has done a great job at turning so-called, quote, Christianity into a three-ring circus. People are fundamentally confused about grace and therefore about Jesus himself 
and God's plan for salvation. If, he's, if he can hijack grace, you don't understand Jesus and you don't understand salvation. So we're going to look at what, the, what Scripture has to say about these things. Let's put it this way, though, up here on the board. If a person's confused about salvation, doesn't it stand to reason that a person will be confused about the Savior? In other words, if you don't know what salvation, what is required to be delivered from sin, not just the, not just the penalty of it, but the actual dominion of it, the power of it. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand who you need for a Savior. If, in other words, if you only think that being saved is going from hell to heaven, then you're going to look for a little Jesus that says, I'll take your hand, if you believe these things about me, I'll take you to heaven. But you never actually addressed the sin problem, did you? No. So how could you submit to him as the Savior from the dominion of sin that you were born in? See, that, that conversation never happens in today's gospel. It's sort of this one-two punch. One-two punch. You good? We're good. Yeah! Woo! Six months later, three-quarters of the people who were so emotional and spun up on the so-called gospel and nowhere to be found are right back in the mire. And I'm not judging them, but Scripture says that person needs to do some Serious soul-searching. Some are so confused about the Savior, they have called out the, quote, Gospel of Paul. I've heard this. I know some of you have heard that. The Gospel of Paul, which is presumably, by the way, the so-called Gospel of Grace. Yes, it's true. He said, I have the administration of grace. Great. I have to fight this battle. Awesome. But it wasn't a different grace. Who was his teacher, after all? Jesus Christ himself. So who would have taught him grace? Jesus Christ himself. Was Jesus confused in his own ministry? I don't think so. It never says that. And it says also, we just read what in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not a God of what? Confusion. So Jesus Christ is not going to seek out to confuse. He's not going to send out, you know, the gospel, the so-called gospel to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul, with a separate gospel. So some are so confused about the Savior, they have called out the gospel of Paul, which is presumably the, quote, gospel of grace, as something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is wrong. Concentrate here, folks. The reason why contemporary, quote, Christians accept such an abomination is because given their theology regarding grace, Jesus Christ himself doesn't fit. Do you understand? Jesus Christ of Scripture doesn't fit in any other theology regarding grace except for true grace. And so if you've got a perverted Jesus, then you've got a perverted gospel. And then if you've got a perverted gospel, you've got an awful lot of people that may have believed on that gospel that think they're saved and they're not. They haven't even addressed the real issue yet. Matter of fact, they're still loving and living, completely abiding in the old life, in the sin. They haven't been changed at all. They were convinced about some facts. Oh, if Jesus Christ, you mean if I believe in Jesus Christ, I go to heaven? I don't get to go to hell? Yes. Okay, I totally believe that. But Jesus is also Lord. And when he changes, you're going to pluck you out of that depravity. Oh, I'm depraved? I didn't know. I'm not depraved. I'm kind of good, actually. Like the Pharisee. At least I'm not like that guy. 
this is a different conversation altogether. The reason why contemporary Christians accept such an abomination because given their theology regarding grace, Jesus Christ himself doesn't fit. So many of these same folks spend inordinate, if not all, of their time in the epistles when referring to the gospel. How could that possibly be? Reflect for a moment. What many of these folks haven't realized is that Paul and the other writers, you know, Luke, John, Peter, James, were often having to reach in. You know, there were churches, and Paul started new churches, and the other apostles and such were overseers of the churches. And what would happen based on location and timing and what have you, the type of false teaching that was coming from without, sometimes they would see out and look out, just like I'm looking out this morning, and see a congregation that was infected with something. And they knew something was up because they knew what had been infecting the churches, false teachers. So you have to think about these gentlemen who wrote the New Testament, who penned it at least, they were often having to, let's say, reach into the soiled doctrines that had infected the minds of the churches from without. In other words, let me try to explain this um, with an analogy. The Apostle Paul was like a surgeon. The churches were like different body parts of his patient. Due to the churches doing unhealthy things to themselves and even accepting unhealthy things from others, certain parts of his patient became riddled with cancer. Now, as a, quote, spiritual surgeon, Paul would often have to cut open his patient, identify the cancer, discover where and how it had spread throughout the body, and then surgically extract it. If you've ever seen a real surgery, you know what kind of precision is required for success. There's an awful lot of training even involved in ferreting out cancer and carving around it without cutting certain vascular structures and have a person bleed out, right? There's even some stitching up after that has to be done. But the whole thing is very, very precise. And so there's very precise instruments. And in Paul's world, in a shepherd's world, our instrument is our words. And so he used very precise words to surgically carve out certain things. Because the cancer, just like real cancer, it clings and it envelops and it, and, and it infects healthy tissue and it takes a real surgeon to carve out these things. So you have to understand that he was going in, and so were the other writers, and surgically extracting false doctrines, which is hard. Trust me, I've been at it for a long time now. It's really hard to do because Satan has infected so many definitions of this and that. And when you say faith, do you, do you mean this? When you say believing, do you mean that? When you say grace, do you mean this? And I'm like, no, you have to, let's cut that part out. 
So Paul was like a spiritual surgeon. But here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. You, you ready? You don't have to be a surgeon to understand salvation. You all. You don't have to be surgeons to understand salvation. You may need to act like one if you're commissioned to, quote, cut out cancerous false doctrines that have infected the church. But that's not for everyone. For example, a teenager who has just realized and repented from his own depravity turned to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior doesn't need to understand all of the forensic and judicial aspects of salvation to be saved. Yet, as the Bible states, this person is absolutely capable of being saved. In fact, there are millions, if not billions, of people who have and are saved that never understand, say. And this is true. There are, assumably, I'm hoping billions, I'm hoping, over the years, that are saved that never, say, understand every detail about justification. Every detail that Paul wrote about regarding justification in, say, the book of Romans. Or they may never fully grasp what James talks about in his epistle after his name. Or it's quite possible that a person never understands the nature of John's arguments in the first epistle after his name, namely his struggle with Gnosticism and Docetism and those kinds of things. It's funny because I just said those two words, and I'd bet the vast majority listening to my voice right now couldn't even give me sound definitions for both of them. So am I supposed to assume that you all aren't saved? Because you don't have the mind, the hands, or the skills of a spiritual surgeon? Is this what I'm supposed to believe? Concentrate. As I alluded to earlier, many so-called, quote, Christian churches nowadays will rest their hats on the epistles of the New Testament as the place to discover and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even their theology regarding the gospel is lacking in the very words of Jesus Christ himself. If this gospel, if this Savior, if this Lord is Jesus Christ, and he had something to say, even four books worth, Shouldn't we start with him? Especially since he's the one who brought up those that went out after he left? After his own ascension? But there are whole Christian denominations even that barely, if ever, touch the first four books in the New Testament. They have, as we've learned in the past, hyper-dispensationalize them away. And how handy, how accommodating that is for Satan in sowing a perverted gospel. Something, as I've taught also, is only 100 years old, but is taught as if it was ancient. 
started with Darby, Schaefer, guys like that. There's only, what, 150 years old max? I hate to name names, but that's the way it goes, my friends. So even if theology regarding the gospel is lacking in the very words of Jesus Christ himself being written off through some other perversion, such as hyper-dispensationalism or the so-called, quote, grace gospel movement that isn't really representative of God's grace at all. Now, if you think that a guy like me doesn't understand grace, you're on crack. We may have to have a couple of words, frankly. You know what the difference between me and the average moron out there is? I actually understand all of God's grace, and I wholly accept it in humility. I don't try to dice up Jesus Christ. I don't try to carve up his gospel because it makes it more accommodating for those people that I love and adore in my life. I don't do that thing. That would make me an ass. That would make me an enemy of Christ, not his friend. How dare any of us try to accommodate others by carving up grace? Chopping up Jesus? What a grave mistake that is. Again, to our previous point, again, Satan, the great attorney, has done a great job at turning so-called Christianity into a three-ring circus. People are fundamentally confused about grace and therefore about Jesus himself and God's plan for salvation. Hence the point on the board. If a person is confused about salvation, doesn't it stand to reason that a person will be confused about the Savior, or vice versa? Some are so confused about the Savior, they have called out the, quote, gospel of Paul, which is presumably the gospel of grace, as something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is wrong, and it leads to all kinds of error. What has happened as a result of all this confusion and please understand that I am acting as a spiritual surgeon right now. This is hard to teach, folks. It's hard to teach. But this is how I'm acting right now. I know that it still exists in some of your souls. I know because some of you are honest enough to share it with me. I can tell by your own lives, by the way you talk even in some cases, that some of this stuff still exists. What has happened is that people have lost sight of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3, up here on the board, just to help net this out midstream here. The great perversion is that salvation is from hell. I mean, who the heck wants to go to hell? Nobody I know. But here's the deal, that's not the problem. That's a destination. That's not the actual problem. The great perversion is that salvation is from hell. The truth is that grace saves and delivers a person from sin. Therefore, they don't end up in hell. But salvation and grace completes the work. Either you think it's sufficient or you don't. Grace delivers Saves, same word, same idea. From what? You were born under the dominion of unrighteousness, which is sin. Anybody doubt that? 
I can take you to Scripture right now. All in, in Adam, all have died. All are made alive in Christ. That's Scripture. So you're born this way. So if you're going to be saved, you've got to be saved from this condition in which you were born in. You were born under the lordship of sin itself. The God of this world is a part of it. So salvation from hell is a perversion. The truth is that grace saves delivers a person from sin. Sin is the real issue, not hell. Hell is a destination for those remaining in their sins because they rejected God's grace. God's grace includes all aspects of deliverance from sin, spiritual death, and its dominion over all humans born into it. That's what you need to be saved from. Not from hell. I can scare a little three-year-old into saying, I believe in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. They don't know the first thing about their own depravity. They don't understand that they've been born in sin. But they sure in heck don't want to go to that place. Go to uh, Romans 8.30. I want to show you something in Scripture that really says that God, that God's grace is sufficient from beginning to end, from before you were born to the day you're glorified in heaven. Think about this. God's grace, His, thumb, His uh, fingerprints are all over the bookends. Romans 8.30 and these whom he predestined, these he's talking about obviously saved individuals. Saved from what? Sin. Those whom he predestined, that means before you were even born, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. God's grace and salvation begins before man was even born. That's predestination and ends with his glorification in the eternal state. So please, do not think that for even a split moment that I'm teaching anything but grace. What I'm actually teaching is a greater grace than what's on the street nowadays. What I'm actually teaching is that the true grace of God, he says, if I'm going to save you, I will do this thing. Matter of fact, before you were even born, I ordained it to come to pass. So you either think that His grace is sufficient to deliver you from that which you were born in, or you don't. God's grace and salvation begins before man was even born. That's predestination. And ends with His glorification in the eternal state. Do you see in Scripture that God's grace covers all aspects of deliverance from sin? I hope so. Do you see? See, for a lot of you, this idea of salvation went from being some obscure, almost, um, not arbitrary, but some past tense thing that happened. On this day, on November 11th of the year, in Bill's case, 1308, you know, <laughs> I was saved. Right? I was saved, and whatever happened after that, whatever, right? Whatever. I've been, I've been partying ever since. A lot of you have been moved from that kind of thinking, which is garbage, which is not full grace, to saying, wait a minute, salvation is 
in God, from God's perspective, is literally from the dominion of sin, which means if he plucks me out of that dominion through his son, by grace, through faith alone, and places me and creates me a new creature, then all this stuff that we just read in Romans 8.30 is part of salvation? Yep. That's how you think about salvation. Not some little arbitrary point in time that you get to point back to. And then ever since, you know, you've been living, still abiding in the dominion of sin. That's not grace, folks. Do you understand? That's not God's grace. That's some perversion of grace. That's like a, you know, a little Jesus, a little J, a little G even, a little grace. A little gospel, a little G gospel. That's, what good news is that? What good news is that? Well, seriously, let's play the antithesis now. Let's play devil's advocate. Suppose that could actually happen. We might be saying right now, what the heck, God? All right, that's cool. That's cool. I'm not going to hell. I get to go to heaven. But, you know, I lived these 70, 80 years on earth, and I'm, you didn't pluck me from the sovereignty of sin. What, what gives you? I thought you delivered me. I thought you saved me. Well, you can choose to be saved. Oh, that sounds like a human work. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But volition. Shut up. What do you mean, volition? You can choose if you're saved. You can be tempted by this thing to sin. But that's a very different statement than saying, I can abide in sin and sometimes choose for righteousness out of my normal domain. That, my friends, is not grace. Any grace that doesn't include all aspects of God's grace is a perverted grace. Any grace that doesn't include all aspects of the grace we find in this book is a perverted grace. I fear that this perversion is touted as, quote, salvation from more pulpits than I wish to even think about up here on the board. As a result of this perversion, many have believed that, quote, grace is merely a free trip to heaven and their gratitude should be focused on the fact that they, quote, won't be going to hell. In reality, God's grace is much, much greater. Much, much greater. Ponder this regarding true grace. The Lord is able. Is there any truer statement? Could we possibly say anything that's truer? There are things that are equally true, but could we say something truer than the Lord is able? Honestly. I don't think so. The Lord is able. And if the problem statement is you were born in sin, then if he's going to save you, you know what he's really going to do? He's actually going to save you from that thing. He's not going to leave it up to you after you're supposedly saved to make a choice. The Lord is able not only to pluck you from eternity in hell, but more importantly, from the throes of spiritual death as all are born in sin, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. That's the way you enter into this world. If he's going to save you, he's going to save you. His grace delivers you completely from the sovereignty of sin to the sovereignty of righteousness. It's impossible 
to remain in sin and claim Jesus as Lord, as these are mutually exclusive realities. Again, this is true grace. The Lord is able not only to pluck you from eternity in hell, but more importantly, from the throes of spiritual death as all are born in sin. His grace delivers you completely from the sovereignty of sin to the sovereignty of righteousness. It's impossible to remain in sin and claim Jesus as Lord as these are mutually exclusive realities. And just so you have that scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If, if, the, gospel's, if, if the gospel's perverted to the point where a person can say, you know, I can choose for a Lord later, then what the heck is Paul writing about? In Christ all will be made alive. If this is the sovereignty of sin, and it represents spiritual what? Death! How in the world could you be made alive in Christ? Do you understand what a lie that is? That God's not able. The Lord's not able. I guess Paul was on crack. I guess he was lying when he wrote that. This is the argument. And people are so lazy and disenchanted and wanting to be just, what, accommodated. That they want, the, they want the perverted gospel. They want someone to tell them, it's okay, you can decide on, on Jesus as Lord later. That's a complete misdirection from Satan. Complete misdirection. How in the world, that's what Paul says in Romans 6, are we supposed, if, we die, if we're dead to sin, are we supposed to live in it still? What does he say? May it never be. He writes it again here. You were born in Adam, but if you're saved, you're alive in Christ. You cannot be alive if you're still in spiritual death. Does that make sense? He makes a new creature, and that new creature is actually, in fact, alive in Christ. Now you have this disgusting flesh that may breed sin every so often, but you, the person you identify with as a saved person, is this new creature made alive in Christ. Otherwise, think about it. If, he, if that perverted gospel is true, whose job is it? If God says, nope, you're on your own, I'm going to leave you there, and it's your choice to make Jesus Lord. Whose work is it at that point? It's your work. He said, I, I, look, and if I was going to, you know, see how hard this is to do? I'm almost having a double talk. I'm having to use the same language. Jesus did this, Paul did this, the apostles did this. It's grotesque to have to use this language, but we have to, to surgically cut it out because we have to identify it. I have to use the same grotesque language, and it bothers me to have to do it. But you have to understand what's actually being peddled out there as garbage and what's actually true. If God saves you, truly saves you, you are made alive in Christ. There is impossible, not kind of, not maybe later, it's impossible for you to abide in this thing that you were born in. Because there you were dead, here you're alive. You don't get to choose later. And if you're truly alive, guess who's Lord over this dominion? Who? Jesus Christ. But, but, no, shh. Drop the butts. Stop, stop the accommodating speech. 
So as the Spirit's been teaching us up here on the board, the gospel, the good news about God's plan to save us from sin. We are not saved from hell, quote-unquote, strictly speaking, as that is not the key problem statement. We are not born in hell, are we? No, we are born in sin. If we don't accept God's grace, all of it, we will die in our sins. John 8, 24. What you have to realize is some people will believe certain aspects. They don't want all of Jesus, though. They only want the free trip to heaven. They like, they still like the sovereignty of sin. Why would so many billions of people over the years remain in their sins, actually die in their sins? Because they're arrogant. And arrogance likes this one. You see? Likes this realm. But arrogance is also arrogant enough to think that they can hedge a bet against God's salvation even. In other words, remain here but still get the free trip to heaven. Let's make that our gospel. That is a hack on grace itself. That person doesn't yet understand the fullness of God's grace. Up here on the board. If we don't accept God's grace, we will die in our sins. John 8, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, we just covered that one, you will die in your sins. On Thursday, the Spirit also had a lot to say about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, specifically on the topic of grace. Go to John 1, 17. John 1, 17. It's funny because, um, you know, if, if messages like this, you know, are sort of, if people are confronted with them, some of them might even write, write off these things. I've even had conversations with people in the congregation. It seems like a little bit like semantics. Oh, no. Oh, no, it is not semantics, my friend. This is not about, you know, oh, well, you say tomato and I say tomato. Oh, no. Oh no, this goes to the root of the problem. This is not to be um, swept under the rug. This is not a little topic. This is a huge topic. This is the big topic. If you don't understand God's grace or the fullness of it, how could you possibly understand what I just described about being saved? How could you understand what it means to be alive in Christ? John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Who? Through Jesus Christ. But I thought Paul was the steward of grace. Yeah, all right, Scripture says that. But who taught Paul? Hello? Mr. Grace and Truth himself. Imagine that. <laughs> Forgive me. I don't mean to, like, you know, talk about him all slang like that, but... Misdirection. Satan has done a masterful job of sowing misdirection, even from pulpits, resulting in folks asking the wrong questions. The question we ought to be asking folks is, what do you believe? Not, do you believe? 
We learned that. that was, we had three, less, three full lessons on believing, right? What did we learn? That not all believing results in saving faith, even as Scripture describes it. So we shouldn't be just asking people, do you believe? Because they could believe certain facts about Jesus, but still believe that they could you know, not have to make a decision about their own depravity. They could believe a lot of things, and Jesus is in the mix. But because of a lack of humility, God gives grace to the humble and is opposed to the proud. Because of a lack of humility, they're not saved. They don't receive saving faith. Everybody believes in something, right? But not everybody is saved. So the bigger question really is, what do you believe? The focus of contemporary Christianity is wrong. Stated more practically up here on the board, the real question we ought to be asking people we are trying to evangelize is something like this. If you believe that Jesus is the Savior, what is it exactly that he has saved you from? Honestly. Okay, what did he save you from? And I don't know. That's really bad, I guess. Because I mean, come on. Or from hell, of course. Those answers may be cause for concern. Because you know why? That's not the issue. If that's as, if, if, if that's as far as you've plumbed the depths of your own depravity, you haven't actually gone there yet, have you? You haven't actually addressed the real issue, which was, as an Adam all died, that you are born spiritually dead that you have a death issue, you have a sin issue, you haven't gone there yet. Or maybe the spirits tried to convict you once or twice or many times and you refuse because you kind of, you know, it's, you like it. Just like the Pharisees. What did they prefer? Work for salvation. Why'd they stick with it when the Messiah was right in front of them? Because they were arrogant. They thought they could impress God through works, which was one of the cancers that the apostles and the writers had to carve out when they were writing the New Testament. No, read Galatians, right? No, it's not about works. You will produce good works, the Bible says that, if you're truly saved, but you never work for salvation. Even something as fundamental as uh, repentance is a grace gift from God. All God's looking for is a humble heart. Do you want my son or not? Because he's the one that, through him, can deliver you from this thing that you were born in to this. So the real question we ought to be asking people is, well, okay, you say you believe in Jesus, but what do you believe in actually? What does he save you from? Some will argue that the reason they spend all of their time teaching from the epistles is that Paul taught something that his own master didn't. Well, let me give you this. Paul, the gospel, and grace. While the specifics, and more poignantly, the application of grace were certainly different, the fundamental premise of grace, especially regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, never changed. Paul had different surgeries to conduct. Does that make sense? Different perversions. You know, Jesus Christ was a disruptive kind of guy. He came on the scene, and nobody liked him. 
And then his word started spreading out. They called it the way. And then, you know, Christianity was a derisive term. Oh, those are the Christians. You know, Christians, right? Those are the Christians. So Jesus Christ was this, like, disruptive guy. And whenever you disrupt something, people react, right? People that don't want that thing will react. And what are people famous for? Read Romans 1. We're wonderfully good inventors. Doesn't it say in Romans 1? If you don't know the truth, you'll invent it. We've studied that out. We invent all kinds of things. Translate, speculate, right? <laughs> then the, the guys that were left with the bag after Jesus left, basically, were like, hey, these morons are inventing all kinds of crazy things. Well, defend it then. I, I gave you my spirit even. He'll re- bring into remembrance the things that I taught you. Go, lo, therefore, I'll be with you always, right? Romans, uh, or excuse me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. I'll be with you. You've got my spirit. The spirit of Christ is with you. So perform whatever surgery is necessary. But do it. So the specifics were different, but big deal. Big deal. It's the same grace. It's the same gospel of Jesus Christ. It hasn't changed. There's not a Paul gospel and a Jesus gospel. And Paul didn't teach anything that Jesus didn't teach. Don't be so uh, naive to think that Jesus didn't understand, teach, and even live grace. You would have to be moronic to believe that. So while the specifics and more poignantly the application of grace were certainly different, the fundamental premise of grace, especially regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, never changed. Paul defended grace against outside perversions with the tenacity of a lion because he knew its import to the gospel. Great. What would you expect a man of Paul's commission, his, quote, caliber, what would you expect him to do? What do you expect any shepherd to do worth his salt even today? What do you expect him to do? This is war. Read Ephesians 6 if you don't believe me. This is war. You want the pearly whites and the curly hair? Go to one of those giant gatherings to to guys that won't even defend Jesus. But if you want truth, guess what? We're soldiers of Christ. And if you're a soldier in active duty service, guess what you've got in front of you? A fight. Pick up the full armor of God. Does that sound like scripture to you? Why would I need to put on the full armor of God if there wasn't a fight? Why would Paul say, fight the good fight? Finish the course, he said. I kept the faith. Why would he say stuff like that? Because it was hard. People were trying to kill him. Consistently. Why? Because they didn't like God's grace, frankly. They didn't like Jesus Christ. You know, grace and truth. They didn't like his master. They didn't like his students. They still don't like us. Imagine that. But that was Paul. As discussed on Thursday, how about Jesus, the gospel, and grace? The Bible does not record Jesus in his incarnation. It's actually using the word grace. Can you imagine that? Oh, well, definitely. He definitely didn't know grace then. Does this mean we ought to suppose the creator of the universe doesn't understand grace? 
As the Spirit's been teaching us, we ought never hang our hats on word studies in the Bible. We must think about the context of Jesus' life and mission to understand such a thing. Up here on the board, so relative to learning grace, ask yourselves, who did Jesus' disciples learn grace from, including Paul? I mean, isn't it obviously? I mean, isn't it obvious? It's Jesus. Who else taught him grace? You think they got to invent it? No. To suggest that Jesus somehow didn't teach grace is to suggest that his own disciples invented it on their own. Not only that, but Jesus also stated that he'd send his spirit to help his disciples after he was gone. Go to John 14, 26. John 14, 26. I mean, who did his disciples learn grace from in the first place? Jesus himself. Makes sense to me. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, verse 26, John 14, will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Up here on the, up here on the board, the Holy Spirit now. Jesus promised his spirit to his own. That is grace. His spirit teaches and reminds his disciples of Jesus' words. That is also grace. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22-23, includes peace even. That is grace. The Spirit and Jesus share the same objectives. The Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Okay, So they are this way, literally. Jesus is God. He sent that same Spirit, same mind. He sent that same Spirit to help his disciples, whom he taught grace to, to remind them of what true grace was, the fullness of it, because he was grace and truth after all, to remind them of those things when they went out and had to do surgery or, you know, announce the gospel, pronounce it or defend it, which is really the New Testament in a nutshell. He said, I'm going to send the Spirit to do this work with you. Do you think the Spirit was whispering in the air something different? big guy's gone. Let's do something different. Whee! Let's confuse everyone. You think, you seriously think that's what happened? No. There's continuity. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. If it's the Spirit of Christ, guess who also is the same yesterday, today, and forever? God, the Holy Spirit, the one he sent, the one who you have indwelling if you're truly saved. Remember the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. Go to Romans 8.5. Romans 8.5. So we've looked at Paul, the gospel and grace. Jesus, the gospel, excuse me, the gospel, excuse me, and grace. But now we're looking at the Spirit. What about the Spirit? What's he have to say about all this talk about the gospel and grace? And even works, for that matter, because that's where we're taking it. But you've got to get grace right, so you don't confuse grace and works. Romans 8, 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God for is not even able to do so. 
Hopefully this is echoing back to the way we began, the first 15 minutes. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And there's that contrast. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, are you actually saved? But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you're not, he's not your Lord, in other words. If you're not given the Spirit, remember in the end of 1 John 3, in the beginning of 1 John 4, who convicts us that we're actually saved? The Spirit does. You get kind of a problem here. If the Spirit's not convicting you that you're saved, if you're just leaning on some hedged bet that you were given, you know, when you were three years old or something. Up here on the board then, how about the Spirit, the Gospel, and grace then? We already looked at Paul and Jesus. If you are saved, you are in the Spirit. This is the same Spirit of God in the Spirit of Christ. This Spirit is a gift to believers, and every gift from above is perfect, with no variation or shifting shadow. So says James in 1.17. The Spirit will always teach grace wholly and the Gospel consistently. Because you know why? Because God's not a God of confusion, and God, the Holy Spirit, is God, who's also the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit will always teach grace wholly and the gospel consistently. Again, look at verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is what? Alive because of righteousness. Ah, oh, there it is, my friends. That's the sufficiency of God's grace. If you're saved, Christ is in you. How could you possibly still abide in this thing? Christ is eternal life, right? Christ is life, right? So says Scripture. How in the world could Christ abide in spiritual death? Unless he's made you brand new through salvation, fullness of grace, brand new, now you're under the dominion of righteousness where Christ actually abides himself. That's what it means when you talk about consistency. The body is dead. The body is still subject to this thing, still likes this thing, but that's going in the grave. We're going to get a new one that's made, you know, incorruptible. This one's corruptible. That's Romans 7. We get the flesh over here, still over here. We get the new creature here. And Romans 7 says this is what they do. <laughs> Right? And Paul's like, oh my God. I really do. I really, I identify with this one, says Paul. I really want to do the things that I want to do, but this thing, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? It's horrible. I'm shackled to this thing. That's Romans 7, in a nutshell. Why is that so hard to believe? It only becomes hard to believe, even verses like this one, if you think that a person can be saved and still abide over here and somehow through volition make their way over here on occasion. Totally bass ackwards. That's right. Bill taught me that. That's why I can't go over there anymore. Teaches me bad words. Started teaching me Spanish. I'm like, Bill, these sound like swear words. <laughs> He's like, but it doesn't count if nobody understands. <laughs> Anyways, digress. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, 
Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Do you understand the distinction there? That's the end product of actually being saved. You literally are saved and delivered from the sovereignty of unrighteousness and placed into the sovereignty of righteousness, even though you're still stuck with this thing. But that's only for so long. Back to Jesus up here on the board. True grace. Jesus didn't teach, just teach grace. He embodied it. That's how you have to look at Jesus. You say, oh, well, Paul used charis and grace, and Paul's the administrator of grace. Great. Well, who taught him? Jesus did. Okay, maybe just maybe the, the Word of God recorded the stuff that was important to, you know, for us to know about Jesus, and then said, well, later on, because, you know, the Spirit's kind of smart. Later on, he says, I'll just use Paul to pen down some things, and I'll do it in a practical setting when the world really is attacking grace proper. And I'll just do it that way. But we'll have the completed canon, won't we? And we do. So if we want to learn about grace in certain circumstances, absolutely. I mean, we've been reading the, you know, the epistles all morning long, right? But what you have to realize is the congruity, the consistency between Jesus' walk and his disciples' walk. And it was the same gospel and the same grace. Don't you dare think for one second just because Jesus Christ, you know, there's no red letters in the Bible that say uh, grace, that he didn't understand grace. I mean, he embodied grace. John said it, right? John 1.17. He is grace and truth. 1.14, fullness of grace and truth is realized through Christ. Jesus didn't just teach grace. He embodied it. He is the representative work of grace in the flesh. He is our prototype end goal even concerning our own maturity towards grace. John 1.14 and Romans 8.29 appear on the board. I just alluded to 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You bet he understood it. Like a wise journeyman builder, Jesus taught his disciples about grace through experience. We know this. We don't know that he very likely taught him about grace proper even. Hey, this is what grace is. Okay. But we see in the Bible for sure that he also took them out. Like a journeyman, you know, like a, like a master carpenter would take out a journeyman carpenter and teach him the trade. I'm not going to just teach you grace. I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to build a few houses, you know, believers. We're going to watch some people. I'm going to warn you, too, because some people are going to say they believe in me, but they built their, they built their house on, on sand. And then what you're going to see is the one that's built on sand and the one that's built on me, the rock, when pressure comes, you know, like the parable of the soils, when pressure comes, this one's going to fall down and go away. And this one's going to remain and bear fruit. That's my Father's grace. That's my grace. See, I do complete a good work in you. I've never lost anyone. It's possible for any of mine to, to run away from me forever. My father will either hunt them down or kill them. But I don't like that. I like being able to live over here. I like the gospel that says I can live over here and then choose for righteousness from time to time. Well, I don't know what to tell you. 
So like a wise journeyman builder, Jesus taught his disciples about grace through experience by showing them the very manifestation of grace himself in action. And as you know, we've seen through Scripture in the past, there's no substitute for experience. There's a reason why we learn so many things. That he says, you know, apply what you know to be true to your life. Live it out. You're going to fail, but you're going to succeed by grace. But just keep pressing on. Be encouraged. There's no substitute for experience. That's why, you know, sitting in a cave and pontificating about things like grace and faith and these kinds of things, I would argue that that person is very liable or liable to end up in a wrong place. Because life itself will force you, if you have any scripture whatsoever, will force you to reconcile your own life, if you're a believer, with scripture itself. And if it doesn't, you have a problem. Ask yourselves, how many professional house builders would be willing to leave a person as foreman on the most grand house ever built if that person had never actually built anything in their life. No, seriously. You get some nerd out of college, 4.0 student in architecture, right? Do you really think a master architect or builder is going to say, hey, <laughs> here's some hammer and nails. Here's the number of the Dartmouth building supply. Go. What? I'm going to go for it. And the winds came, and they blew, and the house fell down. You see? Jesus teaches us all through experience, and his spirit reveals grace to us along the way, encouraging us, convicting us. In his parable of the ten miners, Jesus alludes to this very thing. Go to Luke 19, 12. I've got to pick a spot now. Still got to do communion. I'm literally less than halfway through my notes, but hey, you guys must be slow. Oh, happy Sunday. <laughs> you, know what, you know why it's slow, honestly? Because this is, honest to goodness, I wasn't lying when I said this. This is among the most important things you could possibly need to understand in the spiritual life. If you do not understand God's grace at salvation, nothing else fits. The entire Bible is going to be and remain to be confusing to you, all because you want to cling to something that's accommodating, that so-called assures you of your loved one's saving faith or something ridiculous. I don't like the thought of them not being saved. So then do something about it. Because if you have Christ's love, Christ did not sit there and go, it's okay, I'll make a special. All these are, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. Not you though, because I like you. No, Jesus in love, in love, he is the embodiment of grace and truth and love, said you brood of vipers, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. I love you. Do you follow? That's not true love. 
perverting the gospel, perverting grace, so that it accommodates you and your so-called loved ones, is not love. It's literally the opposite of love. Because love has integrity. What are you afraid of? Because there is no fear in love. What are you afraid of then? But they won't like me. And I, I, you know, my kids are my idols. And my kids won't like me if I you know, press them that way. Well, who do you love more then, your kids or Jesus? You think Jesus left you on earth here so you could be a good mummy or a good daddy? Or to preach the gospel, starting with your own family? What do you think? Why do you think? Why do you think? I don't know. Let's read a parable. Luke 19, 12. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. That's Jesus going away. And he's going to come back. He's gone right now, right? And what did he say? He said, do something with my grace. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minors, a.k.a. grace, and said to them, do business with this until I come back. He chastised the one that didn't do anything, and he said, you've been faithful over little things. I'm going to give you a, a bunch of things to be in charge of to the ones who actually did good with it, did do business as he commanded them. And there were those that rejected him altogether, and he said, take everything from them, throw them out, we ended Thursday with a specific example of Jesus' usage of a spiritual building. Go to Luke 14, 28. Luke 14, 28. I don't know why this one bothers people, but this seems to bother people too. Why would this bother anyone? Honestly. I mean, either God wants you to make a decision or He doesn't. I mean, He's going to give you Saving faith. He's even going to give you repentance. But why would this bother anyone? Oh, it does. Trust me, it does. Luke 14, 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. That's a picture of the person who did not, quote, count the cost of losing self and gaining Christ. He said, if you don't pick up your cross, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you can't follow me. So you have to look at what am I suggesting, what am I saying to you? Here I am, what am I saying? I'm saying I'm Lord and Savior. I'm saying I'm willing to save you. I came down from heaven to save you, like we saw in Luke, right? He came to seek and to save. That was my commission, to seek and to save. It was my Father's will, of course. Do you accept that? Do you want me, or do you just want little parts of me? Because if you want little parts of me, when push comes to shove, you're not going to finish. The building's not going to finish. You're going to have what we call a spurious faith, a faith that doesn't even save, which is why a lot of so-called Christians are no longer Christians. You ever notice that? What does that mean, no longer Christian? But I was. What does it mean to no longer be a Christian? How does that work? How does one person who say they're saved all of a sudden say, Jesus, eh? How could that possibly be true if you've been made alive in Christ? If you're a brand new creature that loves, that abides in the sphere of Jesus Christ himself, who is what? Grace and truth who is love, 
How can that possibly be? See what you have to do to Scripture? Nothing fits. Nothing fits. That person, what Jesus was saying is, has to come to some point, and God sees that point in their lives. It's a humility issue. Do you want this Savior or not? And if I see a humble heart that truly has, quote unquote, counted the cost, having to lose self to gain him, if I see that, I will make it all happen. And oh, by the way, I predestined it, as we saw in Romans 8. I predestined it from before you were even born. And all by grace, I'll do all these things. But if I do not see that heart, or if I see a person trying to hedge a bet, just to, you know, squeak into heaven, oh, St. Peter, let me through the gates. If I see that, uh-uh. Lord, Lord, didn't we... Pr- Shh. Never knew you. Out. Hmm. Just to close out the builder analogy, Matthew 7, 24 and forward up here on the board. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus wasn't the only one who liked the builder's analogy. Paul, his student did also appear on the board, 1 Corinthians 13, 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. And let's end with this one before we get into communion service. Let's read how the writer of Hebrews, or what the writer of Hebrews has to say on the topic of house building, all by grace, of course. Do not forget our primary topic. Go to Hebrews 3, 1. Hebrews 3.1. Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, Whose house, whose house we are, if we hold fast, our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So here, once again, we see a tie back to our ongoing builder analogy, where disciples learn through experiential learning, actually understanding how God's grace builds upon the foundation, the rock himself, which is Jesus Christ. The point is, and I'll close with this, The point is, Jesus showed his disciples what grace looked like through performance so that they saw evidence of a gracious heart. So we'll end up on this. True grace is evidenced through good works. Merely understanding the blueprints of grace is not the same as actually possessing grace and realizing it through experience. 
grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 1.17. True grace is evidence through good works. Nobody understood grace more than Jesus Christ. And nobody produced more good fruit than Jesus Christ. Do you think there's a relationship there? Do you think that the grace of God, the one that Jesus depended on, in his humanity even, to produce all these good works, is inconsistent with the grace that he might give you if you're a believer? Uh Uh-uh. So guess what you will do if you truly have saving faith, the grace of God. You will, as the parable of soils ends with, produce good works. Why does everybody have a problem with that? I'm serious. Why does everybody have a problem with that? Because it doesn't fit with my little accommodating gospel. The one where my whole family saved. Yay! Why is it so quiet in there? Uncle Jimmy? Little Jimmy? Sister Jimmy? Don't like your own kids, I guess. True grace is evidenced through good works. Uh, okay. Why does everybody have a problem with that? Why can't grace and works be in the same sentence? Of course they should be in the same sentence. You know why? Because God is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Sufficient to do what? Just what the Bible says. Produce good works. Duh. Duh. If His grace changes you, you are changed. Amen? And if you're changed, what happens? You produce good works. Duh. Anyways, I have to stop. No video because it went long today. Gentlemen, get ready for our communion service, please.
as is sometimes the case, there's not really much to be said at this juncture. We're going to celebrate our Lord, his person, and his work. There's really not much to be said after a lesson like that one. So let's just stay where we're at in our own souls and reflect on all that he is, grace and truth. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person of our Lord. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. Thank you, Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us a moment to reflect on your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are so very grateful, Father, to you. For as your word states, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, thank you for reminding us of the simplicity and purity of grace and truth that is Christ himself. We pray, Father, that our hearts remain steadfast and always true to you and that the perseverance that your word guarantees us be a wonderful cause for others to understand your promises, especially to those who humbly receive your grace. We pray also this day as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that we ponder his magnificent work a work that was indeed completed by grace, accepted through faith, lest anyone should boast. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. In Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.